background with you. I do encourage you to write your name in it. There's probably a couple of people that are thinking, I would like one, and they all look the same. So write your name in it, and uh, that will help you as we work through the Gospel of John. As we think about John and his purpose of helping us believe, have you ever felt that it was hard to know who to believe? You know, if you can't trust the media to tell it to you straight, and you can't even trust our president to tell it to you straight, and you can't trust Facebook to not skew the facts, and you can't even trust the experts anymore on either the economy or on COVID or on anything at all. And if everything that, is, that you hear is really driven by who's sponsoring the comments and what's in it for them, how on earth do you know where to look to get any kind of grounding in reality? You might be here this morning and pretty cynical about who to believe. And I have to admit, I'm kind of with you on that. Skepticism is a reasonable starting point, even for religious matters. Let me actually say it this way. Skepticism is a reasonable starting point, especially for religious matters. We are about to embark on a journey through the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a narrative of the life of Jesus. It is written by John, the son of Zebedee, who was a disciple of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and who is an eyewitness of Jesus' entire earthly ministry. He is the only disciple not to forsake Jesus at the crucifixion. And he himself sees the empty tomb and believes. John 20, verse 8 says, Then that other disciple, John, that's how he refers to himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. So John is going to testify in his gospel as an eyewitness. Hear the, ling- the legal language in John 21, 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know his testimony is true. It's almost as if John is imagining that this is a courtroom trial, where there are witnesses testifying, Jesus himself testifying, people testing his claims where Jesus is under constant cross-examination. It's not a real trial. Not yet, anyways. That's still to come. But right from the start, John maps out his book like a long jury trial. And he does this for you. John wants you to see Jesus clearly so that you can make an appropriate response to who he truly is. John wants to reveal the true Jesus so that you will respond in accordance with the truth. And John is sensitive to your skepticism. He knows it's one thing to proclaim on a Sunday morning, you can know God through Jesus Christ, his son. But it is another thing to be given a presentation that would make that credible. 
It is one thing to announce something. It is quite a different thing to provide evidence for something. It is one thing for you this morning to take his word for it. It is another thing for you to be persuaded that his word is trustworthy. So John is going to take us to the courthouse. The method and the language he uses comes from the court of law. And guess what? You are the jury. Trying, testing, weighing the witness, pronouncing your verdict. Ladies and gentlemen, court is in session. John is at the bench, and it's Jesus versus the world. And here's the disputed claim that John hopes that you'll settle this morning. John is writing his gospel for you to settle the disputed claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, don't misunderstand the Son of God language. When John is using the language Son of God, he is not using that to mean that Jesus is some kind of secondary God, that Jesus was created by God. He is using it actually in a very opposite way. Jesus' claim to be the Son of God means that he is of the same essence, that he is made up of the same God stuff. John is putting on trial the claim that Jesus is equal with God. John is the only writer that comes out right from the beginning in the very first 18 verses of chapter 1 and lets you know who Jesus is from the very beginning. Consider verses 1 through 18. You probably have a heading there in your Bible. Consider 1 through 18, John, as a lawyer, his opening statement. It is his legal brief. It is his executive summary presented to the court. He is giving you insider knowledge of who Jesus is so that you can see Jesus for who he truly is and evaluate on how everybody else responds to him. John's oral argument starts this way. God expresses himself to us in Jesus. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Words express who we are. And when it is an important word, we write it down. When it is a sentimental word, we engrave it in silver and gold. When it is a monumental word, we carve it in stone. And when God wants to make himself known, he makes his word flesh. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The unseeable God, now seen. No more guessing. Look at John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Do you hear John's claim? 
John is making the incredible claim that the Jesus he knows firsthand, that the Jesus that he walks with, that the Jesus that he talks with, that the Jesus we're going to read about for the next 21 chapters, that this Jesus is that God. He alone makes the invisible God known. See Jesus clearly, and you will see the unseen God. Now the question is, can that claim be validated? Your skepticism might say, you know, I think John, this gospel writer, has a vested interest in seeing Jesus as God. I mean, after all, he is one of his disciples. He is a believer. He drank the Kool-Aid. He probably wants to see Jesus raised from the dead to make sense of his past three and a half years. Couldn't John just write that to make Jesus God? Doesn't he have a vested interest in that? So who could John the writer find that would be a credible witness for the court? It would have to be somebody who has a personal knowledge about Jesus. It would have to be somebody whose character can withstand scrutiny. And it would have to be somebody that doesn't have a vested interest in seeing Jesus raised from the dead and yet still believes Jesus is God. We might ask, can I get a witness? I wish I had a little more soul in me to be able to say that right, you know, but can John get an incredible witness? Look at John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. We really should call him John the Witness. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The first witness to help you see Jesus clearly is John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Oh, he has personal character. There is no dirt to dig up on John. There is no ghost in his closet. He calls a spade a spade. It's actually what gets him put in prison. And when he's in prison, did you know that he doubts if Jesus is the one? And that actually doesn't undermine his credibility. It only provides more evidence for you, the jury, because he thinks his way clear. And then he still believes that Jesus is the one. But let me offer you the best reason why John the Baptist is called first as the primary witness. He doesn't have a vested interest in Jesus Christ. See, John the Baptist comes to the floor he takes his stand, he gives his oath, and he presents to you the testimony that Jesus is God before the death of Jesus, before the announced resurrection of Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist will die before the death of Jesus Christ. He has no idea that he's going to be raised from the dead. He's not there to see it. No wonder he is chosen as the primary witness that he calls first. No one's handling him. He has no vested interest in Jesus being raised from the dead, and he still believes Jesus is God. It's worth listening to his testimony. Well, what does he have to say? What he has to say about Jesus, he does so by way of titles. 
To see Jesus clearly, look at these titles. Verse 29, John chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, 29, the large numbers of the chapters, small numbers of the verses. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who John wants us to see right up front. Jesus, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb who is graciously going to give his life for the forgiveness of humanity's biggest problem, our sin. And this is John's testimony. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He sees more about Jesus than anybody else. And he thinks that you will see Jesus for who he truly is if you notice his titles. So it comes back to you. John the Baptist testifies that all. Do you hear the cosmic nature of this trial? It is an ongoing trial even today. John testifies that all might believe. It's the very first time we have the word believe, and it occurs 98 more times in the Gospel of John. He testifies that all might believe through him. And then notice what happens next. That's precisely the result. People believe on account of John the Baptist's testimony. Look at verses 35 through 37. 35 through 37, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Others hear John's testimony. They weigh his witness. They see Jesus for who he truly is, and they respond in accordance with the truth. They become his followers. My friends, it is important to see things clearly. How do you see Jesus? Now, you might expect that if God reveals himself, that everyone would respond appropriately. Especially if John's words about Jesus correspond to Jesus' works. Especially if John's statements about Jesus correspond to Jesus' signs. Especially if John's testimony about Jesus have confirmed testimonies of changed lives. But if you thought if everybody would respond appropriately, you're wrong. Turn to John 5. John 5 paints a different picture. Here in John 5, you can watch it unfold as Jesus, with a word, performs an incredible healing. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. John 5, 9. And at once the man is healed. At once he picks up his mat and walks which is an astonishing thing to do after 38 years of not walking. You would think, wouldn't you, that this would be a cause of celebration? But we don't get the effect that we would expect. John gives us the punchline. Look at 9b. 
Now that day was the Sabbath. When it comes to Jewish religion, one of the religious rules that they are fixated on is the Sabbath day. And the morality police are watching. In verses 10 through 13, the Jewish leaders say to this guy who has never walked before, who has just been healed, what are you doing carrying your mat like that? Don't you know what day it is? It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Instead of praising the religious police protest, you broke the law. Right? Instead of glorying in his healing, they are grieved by his hubris. They are grieved by his pride that he would pick up his mat and walk on a Sabbath day. That's religion. They can't see the real Jesus because they really love their religious rules. Do you see how it plays out? Verses 15 through 16. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. God revealed, but not recognized. God unveiled, but not understood. And it's a pattern that we're going to see time and time again. The Word made flesh. The God of the universe becomes a man and walks with us, and yet people choose to ignore him. People choose to remain in the dark. They choose to judge Jesus on their own terms. They can't see Jesus for who he truly is, even when he tells them who he truly is. Look at verse 17, John 5, 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. You know what he's claiming there? Equality with God. Consider this astonishing claim. Skip down to verses 24 through 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. You're claiming to be doing the work of the Father, and you're claiming to be called the Son of God. The question is, can those claims be validated to stand up in court? And Jesus testifies. He takes the stand. He takes an oath. And he says, I'm not talking myself up, guys. I present to you, first of all, my character witness. And in verses 33 through 35, Jesus reminds the jury of John the Baptist. Here's my character witness. But he moves on from John the Baptist to evidential witness of his works. Look at verse 36. John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me. The Father has sent me. His works bear witness about him. The turning of water into wine in John chapter 2. 
The healing of the official son in John chapter 4. The man healed at the pool in John 5. These signs should help you see Jesus for who he truly is. His works bear witness about him. But so did the Father's words. Look at 37 through 38. And the Father who sent me, he himself has borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his words abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And finally, Jesus presents to you, the jury, documentary evidence, the whole Old Testament scriptures. Read, look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and it is they who bear witness about me. The ones you say you know so well, you religious morality police, they actually say that this Jesus is that God. So to see Jesus clearly, hear the words of Scripture. Members of the jury, I present to you the collective witness of the works of Jesus, the words of the Father, the writings of Scripture to persuade you to believe that what Jesus is claiming is true. Can you see clearly who Jesus is? The religious leaders can't. Now, a question that should be on your mind is this. If the religious leaders can't see Jesus for who he truly is, then who can? A blind guy. Turn to John chapter 9. He is our prime example of what it takes to see Jesus. And once he sees Jesus for who he truly is, he responds in accordance with the truth. So let's see how this man, who walks in darkness every day of his life, has seen a great light. John 9, verses 6 through 7. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then Jesus anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now at this point, this man is still ignorant of who Jesus is. Remember, he's never seen him. He only heard a word and obeyed. Hmm. So when the neighbors ask him what happened to him, he says, the man called Jesus healed me, verse 11. Now the neighbors testify that this miracle is true, credible evidence for you, the jury. They all confirm he's been born blind. Now he can see. But they, it's too much for them to take in. No one who has ever been born blind, has been healed. So they get the experts to judge, what could this possibly mean? Will the religious leaders be able to see the significance of this sign? Will they be able to see that this Jesus is that God? Well, John tips us off again at what will prevent them from seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Look at verse 14. Now it was the Sabbath day, 
when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. They are so distracted by their religious rules that when their long-awaited Messiah turns up in the person of Jesus, they don't even recognize him. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The blind man sees more than they do. Under cross-examination, the blind man testifies. Look at verse 17. He is a prophet. The blind man was initially ignorant of who Jesus was. A man healed him. But now this man is that prophet. The blind man is beginning to see more, and the religious leaders are beginning to see less. And in verses 24 through 34, you begin to sense the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are actually choosing to ignore what is right in front of their noses. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Now the irony is thick in this section. Right? The blind man can see, and the seeing ones have become blind. The Pharisees refuse to see who Jesus truly is, and so they urge this man to condemn Jesus as a sinner. When actually God is most glorified when you don't condemn, but you actually confess Jesus is the Savior. The Pharisees choose to ignore Jesus, but the blind man who was once ignorant can't ignore him any longer. Look at 32 through 33. The blind man testifies to the religious authorities, right? I mean, listen to them teach him, right? Or he, he teach them. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The blind man gets it. The blind man sees Jesus for who he truly is, and he joins the witness collective. But testifying that this Jesus is that God gets him kicked out of all religious circles. Evidence for your heart. Jesus, the good shepherd, who loses none that the Father gives him, goes and seeks him and finds him. Look at verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. His verdict is in. And by the end of the story, you begin to see there's a clear distinction between those who can see Jesus for who he truly is and those who don't. But do you see, faith family, that there's a big difference between being ignorant about Jesus and choosing to ignore Jesus? Maybe you came here this morning ignorant of who Jesus was, and there is every opportunity for you to learn about him here. We'd love to walk with you. Maybe a guided tour one-on-one -on -one through John. It would be our pleasure.
Sometimes people see the evidence, know where it's pointing, and refuse to see. So the question to you this morning is, which group do you fit in? Would you like your eyes opened? Or are you going to refuse to see? At this point, you'll notice the verdict about Jesus really can only go two different ways. In John 10, 42, many are believing in him. But as many are believing in him, so also the opposition grows even stronger. After the raising of Lazarus from the dead, in John eleven fifty three, 53, we hear this. From that day on, the Jews made plans to put Jesus to death. After the raising of Lazarus from the dead, it is then the Jews want to put Jesus to death. We are to see this amazing truth that for Jesus to deal with Lazarus' death, he must be willing to go to his own. It's a turning point in the Gospel of John that we'll get to in time, but you are meant to see as you get to chapter 11 and the end of it that to bring Lazarus to life Jesus knows that for him it means his death. And John is writing this not just for the physical truth. John is writing this as a sign for its theological importance. We are to learn from this that life only comes through death. Death is the hour that Jesus is moving towards. Look at John chapter 12, verses 20 through 24. John 12, 20 through 24. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Death for Jesus, life for Lazarus. Death for Jesus, life for us. Unlike the Jews, the Greeks actually want to see Jesus. But Jesus says there's more to see than signs and wonders. Jesus is beginning to teach in chapter 12 that it is my death that God is most glorified. So friends, if you're new to what Christianity is all about, you need to know this. The death of Jesus was not an accident. The death of Jesus was not a mistake. The death of Jesus is not even a tragedy. The death of Jesus is his climactic hour for you to see the unseen God. And what do you see? His love generosity, his offer of life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Life with God is only possible through the death of Therefore, Jesus' ministry will come to an end. The hour is here. The sun is setting. 
And the tragic news is the Jews can see all of these signs, but they cannot see their Savior. Look at verse 37, John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. Let's just pause for a moment and think about what it takes to actually come to believe a claim. Let's actually stop and just think, what is the process in which a new belief in something takes shape? When you're faced by a claim like this and you're convinced that it's true, there's often going to become implications as a result. Let me put it to you as simply as I can. Change the way you see Jesus, and it will change the way you see everything else. And it will often change how people see you. You get that? Change the way you see Jesus. Change how you see everything else. And often how people will see you. And so the disciples need to be prepared. Because how they see Jesus will have implications for how people see them. And so John 13 through 17, that whole section, all those chapters, is actually a pause in the plot. The narrative is not being pushed forward. But jury, the evidence is still being presented for you. It is not evidence for your head. It is evidence for your heart. Because John 13 verse 1 says, see how he loved them. He loves them to the end by preparing them for his end, death on a cross. Because it is an end that they would not expect. So he paints a picture of why it is necessary for him to go and die. In John 13, we have this famous picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. A soul-saving sign for you to see. Because soon Jesus will be unrobed. And he will not just bow his knee, but he will bow his head. And as that cinematic picture of the foot washing points to a great cleansing, there is even a greater sin washing as Christ is unrobed, bows his head, and cleanses us from our sins. Jesus came into the world by dying as a substitute in our place to wash us of our sins. But what they see Jesus portray before them is not what they expect of their Messiah. They are about to miss who Jesus truly is because he does not fit their expectations. The result, John 14 verse 1, their hearts are troubled. You start to get the sense the disciples are not up for his death and departure. And the last thing Jesus wants at this point is for them to miss who he truly is and why he has come. He he wants them to persevere in their belief of who he actually is instead of what they're hoping that he will be for them. So he provides them a promise. John 14, 26. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. 
The Spirit is going to help them remember so that they can be witnesses. They're going to join that collective witness. John 15, 26 through 27. And when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness about me because you have been with me from the beginning. The disciples are going to have a job to do after the death of Jesus. The disciples are going to be people who witness to Jesus both in the world and to the world. That is their job. They will point to Christ crucified. And in doing so, many of them will also have to follow the pattern of Christ crucified. To persevere in the face of that kind of persecution is going to have to require some power. What power? Power of Jesus' words. Here's a point for us to take home. Confidence in Jesus' words will give you the courage to testify to Jesus' work. Confidence in Jesus' words will give you the courage to testify in the world and to the world to Jesus' unique, soul-saving, atoning work. John 13, 19, Jesus says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. He actually sets them up. I'm going to tell you all these things so that when it does happen, you're going to remember it, you're going to be like, oh. And now they can say we can have confidence in his word because he said it before it happened. And now I'm going to testify to his work. Friends, to see who Jesus truly is, they are to hear what Jesus has said. You want to see Jesus? Hear Jesus. His words, confirmed by his works, are to strengthen the disciples' faith for a real, vibrant witness in the world. That is us today. His words, confirmed by his work, are to strengthen us in our faith and our witness to the world. See how he loved them to the end by including them in every detail of his death as a friend. Evidence for your head. Evidence for your heart. Jury, have you reached your verdict regarding the disputed claim that Jesus is the Son of God? The truth is out there. John has presented many convincing proofs. But maybe you still feel at a disadvantage for having lived now and not having lived then. And what you're thinking is, man, I wish I could just see Jesus. If I could just see Jesus, then I would know who he is. That if you had an impersonal encounter with him, that it would mean more than an eyewitness testimony about him. Well, as we come to the final chapters, verses, chapters 18 through 21, they're going to make you doubt how significant sight is for believing. Let me put it to you as clearly as I can. There are limitations of sight for belief. Seeing is not always believing. How so? Consider these people. In closing, consider the Jews. What they see did not supply belief in Jesus. 
When it comes to the trial of Jesus, all they can see is how not to defile themselves and to keep themselves pure for Passover. And what they don't see is that Jesus is preparing himself as a Passover lamb to make them pure. Their religious scruples bind them together against Jesus and it blinds them to who Jesus truly is. There's always more going on than what people see. When Pilate offers them a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, they choose a murderer over their Messiah. God's people cannot see God's son when he's standing right in front of their noses. Seeing is not believing. Consider Pilate. What he sees with his eyes is a Jewish prisoner. It is a question of diplomacy, not a question of Christ's deity. So Pilate can only see, how can I extricate myself from the situation as expediently as possible? Can I pardon him? I offer you Barabbas. Can I punish him? You know, just beat him up a little bit and say, yeah, 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 yeah. he got his hand slapped. And so in John 19, 1 through 3, Pilate took Jesus, he flogged him. The soldiers twisted it together a crown of thorns and put it on his head arrayed him in purple. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. All of that was meant to humiliate Jesus, but Pilate is one of the only ones that actually provides honesty about Jesus. Three times, Pilate does not deny, but confess, I find no guilt in this man. The Jews will not accept the, pol- the politician Pilate, his pardon. They will not accept his punishment. So Pilate results to a parody in which he mocks Jesus. He loves to call Jesus your king to the Jews. He thinks he is taunting the Jews. Want me to release your king? Where does that put you, right? I have your king in my possession. This bound up, beaten up carpenter that you don't even want, Behold your king. Hail the king of the Jews. And even though Pilate only intends to tease, his words are used to testify to a truth that has not been uttered for 18 chapters. The last time the title king of the Jews is used is in John 149. When Nathanael sees Jesus and says, Behold, the king of Israel. Not used again in the Gospel of John until Pilate says, Behold, your king. What he is condemned as is what we are to confess him as, just like Nathanael. But seeing did not lead to believing for Pilate. Consider the disciples. What they see about Jesus does not lead them to follow him. They all forsake him. The cross is not a victory, but a defeat. It is not an exaltation. It is a humiliation. Seeing is not believing for them. In fact, Jesus' trial becomes the largest trial of their faith. Consider Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. The two men that are trying to prepare Jesus' body and give him a tomb, a rightful burial. 
You know what they can see? All they can see is what needs to be done to Jesus' body before Passover. What they don't see is while all this preparation is going on for religion, substitutionary atonement is actually being won. Seeing is not believing. Consider Mary Magdalene. Three days after the crucifixion, what Mary saw with her eyes was an empty tomb, a stone taken away. That did not lead her to believe in a resurrection, but that his corpse had been stolen. My friends, you can be fooled by what you see or by what you don't see. When she encounters the resurrected Jesus, what she sees with her eyes is a gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where they have laid him, and I will take him away. Seeing is not believing. But notice that speech did what sight could not do for Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary, a stone taken away is overcome in her mind by her name spoken. Hearing, overseeing. My friends, you are not at a disadvantage for having lived now as opposed to having lived then. Seeing is not believing. Hearing gives way to believing. John himself says the purpose of his whole book in 2031, these are written so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. John wants you, the jury, to see Jesus for who he truly is by hearing who Jesus truly is from Scripture. And what you hear about Jesus from the Scriptures will help you see the true Jesus. Belief does not depend upon being able to see Jesus, but on trusting the words of eyewitness testimonies. May the clarity of the facts that you've heard lead you to a confession of faith. From Jesus' Lord to what Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Faith family, an application for you. Would you renew with me your confidence in the scriptures? that we will see Jesus clearly the more we read his word. And with a renewed confidence in his word, it will work its way out to a courageous witness in our world. Are we not confident and courageous in our witness because we have not been confident to sit and to see who Jesus truly is by hearing who Jesus truly is from his word? Give you a moment to pause, to pray, see what God would lead you to consider as you've just now embarked and finished our whole tour of John 1 through 21. After a moment of silence, we'll have the praise team come and we'll close in a song.